Welcome to BitCast on Podcast One, the video game podcast with the Axeman. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Nintendo recently announced a remake of The Legend of Zelda Link's Awakening for Nintendo Switch. I played that game for the first time last year on my 3DS, and I wanted to talk about it on the show for a long time, but I kept having other games to talk about until suddenly it's nine months later. This is gonna have spoilers, and I know, it's a really old game. It's about as old as I am. Those spoilers are kind of old news, but, you know, it's, it's a reflex at this point for me. And with the remake, there could be new fans, so it never hurts to be safe. So, with that out of the way, let's just get started. Link's Awakening is the fourth game in the entire series, the first one to be on handheld. It was released on the Game Boy back in 1993, before five years later they updated it for the Game Boy Color. That was Link's Awakening DX, and it's the definitive version of the game. There is absolutely no advantage to playing the black and white release, unless you want to mess around with a teleporting glitch that got removed in the colored version. It's telling that DX is the definitive edition because that's the one that got ported over to 3DS, which is, as I said, the way I played the game. Story of the game is pretty straightforward. Link is sailing at sea for some reason, and then a storm wipes out his puny raft. He wakes up on Koolint Island in the house of a girl named Marin and her father Terran. It's assumed that these two would inspire the characters of Malin and Talon, who would appear in the very next game, Ocarina of Time. Wow, this is the last Zelda game before Ocarina of Time. It's kind of crazy. The last vestige of the series in a pre-Ocarina of Time world. Marin and Terran, like I said, they inspire Malin and Talon, probably, and those two would go on to be recurring characters, so it's kind of nice to see where that all started. As the game begins, Link is missing his sword. He soon finds it and then runs into an owl who tells him that if he has any hope of escaping the island, he needs to wake up the windfish. What's the windfish? It's a large creature sleeping inside an egg on top of the tallest mountain on the island. Imagine that. So, so if the, the windfish wind is inside, inside a giant, giant egg, egg, does that, that make, make it a giant, giant caviar? caviar? Uh, anyway, Link's adventure isn't going to be easy. Link can only wake the windfish by playing a song with these eight magical instruments, and of course they're all locked up at the ends of different dungeons. So the aim of the game is to get through the dungeons, get these instruments... What I really like about the game, though, is that it gives you stuff to do in between the dungeons. Historically, Zelda has had a rough time when it comes to padding the game properly. Some games just go dungeon, 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 wham, final boss. Some games give you entire subquest chains between the dungeons. Skyward Sword makes you go through a past dungeon in between two actual dungeons. Okay, side note, I actually kind of like that part, but that's not important right now. Start of the game. Find your sword, and then explore the forest for some reason, then go to Tail Cave and get the first instrument. Boom. Someone steals the chain chomp from the village, and you have to get it back. Once you do, you can go to the bottle grotto and get the second instrument. Boom. Then you have to navigate an old castle to find leaves for this guy who got kicked out. Now you can go to the key cavern for the third instrument. Boom. The key to the fourth dungeon is blocked by a sleeping animal, so you have to escort Marin across the island so she can play with the animals in the animal village, and then you can make progress. Then go to the angler tunnel to get the fourth instrument. Boom. 
The ghost starts following you for some reason and won't leave you alone until you take it back to its old house. Then you gotta work your way back to the catfish ma for the fifth instrument. Boom. There are a few more details than that thrown in, but as you can see, the game doesn't just throw you from one dungeon to the next. The previous game was linked to the past, and while it was no small feat to reach the various dungeons, that was all the game ever asked of you. There were no mini-quests to speak of, you just do the dungeons. I like when Zelda games give you a bit more meat on the bone than just marathoning a set of dungeons and calling it a day. And it's not just giving you stuff to do to keep the game going, I feel like these mini-quests do a lot to establish the setting. Koolint Island isn't Hyrule, so we've got to get familiar with this new world. The escort with Marin is preceded by a nice chat between her and Link, well, as much as a silent protagonist can have a chat, and we get to know a little more about her. We get to hear how she would like to escape the island someday and see the world beyond it. You even get access to a few little scenes if you take her to certain sites on the island. These quests also help to familiarize yourself with the layout of the island so that later dungeons are found more easily, or at least you're introduced to things that you can remember for later. You ever find Mamu the Frog? You better, because his song allows you to resurrect a chicken that'll let you reach the seventh dungeon. I believe this is also the first Zelda game to incorporate a trading quest. Early on, you could win a Yoshi doll from a crane game, and you have to give that to the right villager all the way until the very end of the game when you end up with a magnifying glass. The trading sequence is a little different from what you would expect because it's actually mandatory. You need to use some of these items to make plot progress, but by the end, the magnifying lens is optional. It is very helpful in navigating the path to the final boss, but you can brute force it if you really want to, but that wouldn't be any fun at all. The path to the final boss is this weird maze, kind of like the Lost Woods, and you have to go in the right direction, and there's no visual cue until you've already messed up. The magnifying glass will show you the path if you know where to use it, and the path is different in each new game, so you're definitely going to want to trade for it each time. The game has a lot of little quirks that you don't often find in the other Zelda games. The nature of these quests between the dungeons isn't what you'd like in most Zelda games. All this emphasis on characters, even if it's not much, it's still unprecedented. I guess later games kind of follow in this vein a bit more, but it still feels different enough with this one. This is also one of the few Zeldas to have multiple endings. Though in practice, it just means the ending will have a slightly different detail if you win without ever dying. You also have items that will boost your attack and defense temporarily after you beat a certain amount of enemies. Though I guess, now that I think of it, Breath of the Wild had cooking, which kind of recreates this system to an extent, but it's not done in the same way. It's always fun to grab a piece of power and watch your foes go flying across the screen after you beat them. The piece of power and the guardian acorn get some flack for changing the background music to this obnoxiously short jingle until they wear off, which is fair. I won't defend that. A lot of the game's uniqueness comes from it being a passion project. After A Link to the Past, the team just wanted to make their own Zelda, and here we are 
one of the most unique installments in the entire franchise. Another uniqueness of the game is the presence of a bunch of Mario enemies. You even run into Wart from Super Mario Bros. 2. He's Mamu. He teaches you the song that resurrects the chicken. You also run into evil knockoffs of Kirby at one point. And that guy who got kicked out of his castle? I believe he's a character from... Well, the rough English version of the title is For Frogs the Bells Tolls. You know the assist trophy in later Smash Brothers games where the boy turns into a snake or a frog? This guy is from that game. A lot of series firsts in Link's Awakening, too, which is impressive since it's sandwiched between two of the most influential games in the entire series. First game to lack both Zelda and Ganon, first game not to be in Hyrule, first trading quest, first appearance of the Rock's Feather, first instance of fishing, first fire dungeon... First time every dungeon gets unique music, first emphasis on character and story, first time you have a selection of songs to play on your instrument, first instance of the talking owl, technically the first instance of Malin and Talon if you squint. This game introduced a lot. I really liked moving around Koalint Island. After a while you start to get to feel for it. I like that all the little areas of the island have their own names, which is normal, but all the area names are just really weird, and it makes them stick out more to me. I feel like it gives a bit more character to the island. Link's gotta go by Toronbo Shores, and then head through the Yukuku Prairie, and finally hit up Yarna Desert. Watch all of these be secretly intelligent references to mythology, or something academic, or maybe even Japanese terminology, and I just look like a fool for getting it wrong. Wouldn't be the first time that happened. Hello, Fire Emblem. We've got the eight dungeons and a few mini-dungeons peppered throughout the game, but in the DX version, they added an all-new dungeon, introducing the Color Dungeon. This was basically an excuse for the DX version of the game to flex its Technicolor muscles and say, hey, we're not in black and white anymore. I always consider it to be the honorary ninth dungeon of the game, even though it's not restricted to the end game and it's not as involved as the main dungeons, it's also optional, but this game is small and concise enough that it feels like a shame not to go through with all the content, even the optional ones. Optional ones? Eh, who cares. The reward is well worth it, too. Once you beat the color dungeon, Link can get a red or a blue tunic. Red ups his offense, blue does defense. Most of the people I've seen play the game go for blue, myself included, because it makes it harder to die, and that means the golden ending will be more likely. But you're not locked into this decision. Just beat the color dungeon again, and you can change to whichever color you didn't have. And you can do that as many times as you like. Can't go back to green, though. You're, you're stuck as red or blue, Link. This is... Uh, pretty early example of Nintendo designing content purely to show off what system they're on. This is the kind of thing you imagine when you think of the Nintendo Wii or the Nintendo DS, but as far back as 1998, they were flexing that gimmick muscle. I don't think it's very in-your-face, though, and the reward is good, so the Color Dungeon gets a pass from me. I should probably mention that during bit 67, when I had Connor on to talk about Frogger, he plugged the YouTube channel Designing For, and how he helped them with an episode discussing the color dungeon in this game. 
The thing to note is how it's a very early example of colorblind accessibility in gaming. Probably not on purpose, since it's only a rather recent trend to start being more accessible to colorblind people, but an early example all the same. They go into a lot more detail than I could provide. I don't want to steal their whole episode, so just go watch their video if you want the full description. I, I tend to agree with it, though. That's all well and good. We have this fun and quirky Zelda game, a couple of extra bits of content for the remastered edition. After a couple dungeons, you kind of get the feel for Link's Awakening. We go along for the ride, seeing what happens next while you try to get to the next instrument before you finally wake up the windfish. And then, a little over halfway in, it becomes possibly the darkest Zelda game of them all. It's not dark in a gritty, edgy way like Twilight Princess. I'd liken it more to the ominous, somber feeling of Majora's Mask, but even that's not a perfect comparison. So, what am I talking about? Well, after you clear Dungeon 5, Catfish's Maw, you might have noticed something weird about the bosses. All of them can talk. And they all seem really anxious about the possibility of you waking the windfish. Okay, that's not too weird. But the fifth boss says something like, You don't know what kind of island this is. Or something. What does that mean? It's not long before you find out. Before Dungeon 6, you come to a small place called the Southern Face Shrine. And once you finish your business there, you have to read this relief on the wall. And you learn in no uncertain terms, that Koolint Island is just a dream that the Windfish is having. All of this island, all of the people on it, all of the unique places and weird monsters, it's all fake. And if you still want to finish your quest and go home, you're going to have to destroy Koolint Island as soon as the Windfish wakes up and ends the dream. That is a very striking moment. It's probably the moment I remember the most in the whole game. I knew well before I got into the game that Link's Awakening took place in a dream world, but to just see it spelled out for you in that way, in that scene, with that music playing, it just really hits home how dark that idea is, that you're introduced to this really pleasant world and these quirky people, only to find out that they won't exist after you finish your adventure. I guess if you want to be a tough guy, you can go like, oh, they're video game characters, they already don't exist, but forget you! Have some attachment every once in a while, it won't kill you. But, yeah, Link has to end the world if he ever wants to go home. Link will not be saving the world in this installment. For his part, Link doesn't really have a reaction to this revelation, but the player is obviously meant to feel something. The music that accompanies this reveal is very haunting. It even comes back as the sixth dungeon's music in the face shrine. And from this moment on, the bosses will all panic over the island's disappearance each time you beat them, all three of them that remain, soon to be two. 
Perhaps fittingly, the game shifts gears a little bit. You no longer have to go through a lot of special subquests just to reach the final two dungeons. You only need to reach them. Granted, Dungeon 7 does require you to learn the Frog's Song of Soul from Wart, but I already did that by that point, so it was just a matter of finding the chicken and resurrecting it. But while Link isn't a loner for the rest of the game, he's not as involved in the island anymore. Not ever since learning of its true nature. I'm not sure if that was intentional, but I like it. The game lightens up on the melancholy. You almost forget everything is a dream as you mess around with the chicken and you run into the weird evil Kirbys in the Eagle's Tower and you're just climbing the Tal-Tal Heights with the awesome music playing. But then you beat up the boss at the end of Eagle's Tower and he freaks out, reminding you of the score. And for extra existential fun, he starts suggesting that Link will disappear too when the windfish wakes up. But you've already come this far. Hyrule is waiting for you. From there, you need to make your way to Turtle Rock, the final dungeon on the opposite end of the Taltal Heights. Along the way, you rescue Marin from a small platform on a bridge with missing sections. And while you can talk to them later, this is the last time in the story that you encounter Marin and Terran, and it's implied that Marin has some level of awareness of Koholint's true nature. She's the only one who's ever been interested in leaving the island, and she even tried to wake the windfish for Link while he was off in one of the dungeons. Early Zelda games were a little cryptic and labyrinthine, more so than the later installments. This one gave me a little bit of trouble too, but nothing I couldn't figure out. It also helps that I watched a playthrough of the game, which is what got me interested in playing the game myself. But Turtle Rock was one of the most frustrating dungeons I remember having to navigate. Fitting enough that it's the final dungeon. We've sure come a long way from the simplicity of Tail Cave. But I eventually got through it. Besides being incredibly contrived, Turtle Rock hosts all the mid-bosses of the previous dungeons, which I think is a nice touch, and one that doesn't really happen in any of the other games. It gives all the mid-bosses one last shot at Link before he ends the world. There's even a unique mid-boss guarding the final item. Once you beat Turtle Rock, there's nothing left in your way. Time to wake the windfish. You can approach the Windfish's egg as early as the aftermath of Dungeon 2, and you can play whatever instruments you have by then, but nothing really happens until you have all eight. You climb the mountain, you play Marin's song, The Ballad of the Windfish. A hole appears in the egg's shell, and the owl urges you to hop in. Now you must navigate this weird maze, that one that I described earlier, where the magnifying glass would help. All set to this creepy, minimalist music, which eventually busts into what almost sounds like a mocking version of the Ballad of the Windfish you just played. You drop down and find yourself face to face with the nightmare itself. The final battle begins, and it takes the form of past bosses from the series, phase after phase, a complete and utter slugfest for the fate of the island. In the end, it takes on a unique form, and the mid-boss music begins to play, which was weird to me at first, but I've come to see it as a poignant gesture. Very meaningful, musical moment. 
The boss is very clearly on its last legs. Everything is frantic. There's not a sense of control here like with most bosses. It's a last-ditch effort to kill Link and keep Koholint Island existing. I'll always remember how hectic the fight got for me. I was down to my very last heart when I won. The nightmare fought well. There is a trick to kill the last form in one hit, which requires a certain item, but I, I feel like that takes the fun out of it. I wanted to do it legit. I beat the nightmare. The owl revealed itself once more before turning into the windfish, which is a weird whale creature with exotic decorations. Oh, okay. The ballad of the windfish plays one last time as Link is ejected from the island and everything disappears, even Terran and even Marin. Link wakes up on his raft at sea, or what's left of it. There's no dry land on screen. A lot of people like to posit that the windfish just left Link stranded on the open sea among his raft's wreckage, leaving him to die. I don't think that's really reasonable. I think we can take a little more of an optimistic look at the ending. Otherwise, the whole narrative of going home just would be pointless. I feel like the game has this undertone of doing the right thing, even when it seems actively harmful, even when you might not want to do the right thing. And leaving Link for dead just seems like that would punish the narrative rather than support it. And I guess there's timeline stuff, but that's a whole other conversation. Oh, and if you beat the Nightmare without having ever died, revival potions don't count as dying, so that's a safety net, then Marin will survive the end of the world. Kind of. She'll appear as a seagull, but it's implied to be her because her song plays and there's a superimposed version of her face in the background. In the DX version, she's a seagull, that is. In the original, she shows up again with wings, but... The DX version is the one that counts, so she comes back as a seagull. Then, she came back as herself in Hyrule Warriors, but I've already talked about that game. Link's Awakening. I guess I can take what I learned from Earthbound last week and remark that this is a weird, charming game, and that weird charm is used to make the impactful moments hit even harder. At the end of the game, I really did feel like I'd lost something, when everyone and everything faded away. It's an experience that I'll always remember. I only played this game myself for the first time last year, but I'd already say it's one of my favorites in the whole series. I don't think I can go and rank all the Zeldas right now, but there you have it. Of course, I already knew everything about the game going into it. I've watched a couple different people play it, but... Actually doing it myself is a whole different thing. I guess that's another thing. I guess that's another thing that I learned from the Earthbound episode. Now for today's favorite songs. The fan favorite song of the game is Tal Tal Heights, and I agree with that. It's kind of an endgame song because you only explore the heights on the path to Dungeons 7 and 8, and it plays on the hill of the Windfish's Egg. You can visit these places early on, in fact, I think you have to pass through the heights to reach Dungeon 4, but there's just that memory of the late game. Going back to the track itself, it's a really pumped-up reimagining of the Hyrule theme, kind of motivating Link to finish the last quarter of his adventure, and reminding him of what he's doing this for. 
Another favorite song is Sword Search, which only plays during the beginning when Link doesn't have his sword. It never plays again after he finds it. And my third favorite is the theme of the Southern Face Shrine. It's when you find out the awful truth of the island, this sad, eerie song that plays the whole time. It's just a loss of innocence. I had my dad listen to it once. He said it sounded like a funeral dirge. I described it before as haunting, and I stand by that, as if to reflect the fact that Link is still wrestling with this discovery, a remix of the song plays all throughout Dungeon 6. Most of the dungeons go for atmospheric music, but this one is different from the rest. I'll always associate this melody with moments where one's entire world falls apart and they have to carry on with burdening knowledge. While I'm talking about the game's music, I want to plug someone on YouTube and SoundCloud named The Second Narrator. They did orchestral rearrangements of the whole soundtrack, and it's really good. And it's not just a one-to-one -one translation into orchestra, either. They embellish a few of the songs, they take some creative liberties, they even create a new boss theme out of nowhere for the Dungeon 7 boss. At the time of recording this, the Earthbound episode has just come up, so I don't know much about the remake, aside from the original trailer, but I can talk about that at least. I think it was weird that we had an anime art style for the trailer before the gameplay was revealed to be some kind of realization of Earthbound's clay models. Seriously, this Link's Awakening remake looks like a cross between Earthbound and Kirby and the Rainbow Curse. I don't mind the art style, though. It's cute. The instrumentation of the trailer isn't cute, though. It reminds me too much of Yoshi's New Island. Ugh. The kazoos. I don't think this remake used kazoos, but still, a weird, makeshift, slightly off-tune feel to it. It's, ugh. I also don't like the song as a very blatant lift of the generic Hyrule theme. That song does appear in Link's Awakening a few times, but I would have gone with the Sword Search theme or with this game's actual overworld theme, or even the Ballad of the Windfish. That song does get hinted at, though, so I can't complain too much. The remake will be out later this year, so I'm looking forward to more news on that. This remake is one of the saving graces of the Nintendo Direct for me. I wasn't too into a lot of their reveals, if I could be honest. With that, that's all I have to say about Link's Awakening. If you want to hear me talk about more games, just keep up with the BitCast on Twitter and Facebook. I've been tweeting a lot about Bowser's Inside Story lately, so I think I'm about due to talk about that on the next episode, or at least one of the next few episodes. I did an episode about the entire Mario & Luigi series very early on, but I've come a long way since then, I like to think, so I want to give one of those games a proper go. As always, subscribe to the show on Podcast One's site or mobile app or on iTunes, and you'll know when the new episode arrives. And I share episodes on social media as well. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you on the next one. Listen to BidCast anytime on PodcastOne.com and on the Podcast One app.